really got to try on that left-hand side. What happened? <laughs> oh, but I've gone up and over, and Marty had over biscuit. It was a, uh, it was, a, it wasn't enough stability there for myself. But um, no, I was busting for a bit of meat this game. It didn't seem to work out. Hello, cheers, and welcome, welcome to the Scrum of the Earth podcast, the weekly show that brings you news, reviews, great interviews, and so much more all about the world of rugby union. I am your host, I'm David Lawrence, I'm an American rugby fan who follows the game wherever I can find it all over the globe, as you'll soon see. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch, well, you know what? I would love to hear from you. I'm on Twitter at of Scrum. I'm on Instagram at the Scrum of the Earth podcast. And you can always just drop me an email at the Scrum of the Earth at gmail.com. So obviously lots to get to this week. So let's start the show. So as always, we start with current updates. And you know what? Current updates this week can really only be one thing. And that is the fact that I have gotten a new job. So as longtime listeners will know, of course, I was laid off almost exactly two years ago now due to COVID. Things have been a serious struggle ever since then. At long last, I found a position <clears throat> with a great company right near where I live. It is an indescribable relief. Having a, you know, a young child and not knowing from where your next paycheck might come is a terrible, terrible combination. And it's just been a massive mental struggle for quite some time now. So for all those who reached out uh, to offer their support and encouragement, thank you all again so much. That was just really meant a lot to me. It, it was a real lift for my spirits, and I'm just so pleased to have found a new home. So uh, exactly a week from today, as I'm recording this, is my first day. I'm absolutely pumped for it. Thank you all again so much, and wish me luck. It's too good. It's too good. People have to know. No, eyes of the, the news doesn't look particularly good this time, I have to say. You know, if you've spent the last few weeks, I guess, living completely under a rock, you might not know that Worcester Warriors are in big trouble, and maybe Wasps as well, and now I'm also hearing things about some other clubs in the Prem. So the Worcester Club are in dire financial straits. It appears at the moment they'll they'll have to be saved by some sort of foreign investment if they're to continue as a club. This past week, it was reported that they'd failed to pay players or staff for this month, or for that month, uh, and it looked like there might be a mass exodus of players because of breach of contracts. Apparently, that money has now been paid. Unfortunately, it's just not really clear where I am, at least, what the actual situation is at the moment. You know, there's rumors about an American group swooping in to potentially buy them up, but it's just a great deal more complicated than that. And in an article uh, from this weekend, linked as always in the show notes, I read, quote, Earlier on Friday, Warriors players, coaches, and staff flooded social media with video messages. Club captain Ted Hill, fellow England international Ollie Lawrence, and highly rated rookie fly half Finn Smith all spoke out. Quote, I really hope the right decisions are made from the people above to allow this club to have a future, unquote, said Lawrence. Smith added, quote, we're just really frustrated now. We haven't been paid. We don't feel we're getting what we deserve as a group, and so we need answers, unquote. Another player, young scrum half Ollie Wynn, has revealed that he has been made homeless by the situation and is staying with another member of the squad. Quote, it shows how tight we are as a unit, and hopefully we can come through this together, unquote, he said. You know, I would hate to see things fall apart over there in Worcester. Steve Diamond said something this week about there being enough money to last for the, it sounded like he said the first three rounds, but he's just not sure about it after that. So, you know, I guess we're all sort of playing the wait and see game right now. Only five days away from the start of the season as I write this. So best of luck to everyone involved. Let's hope that fixes itself very soon. And moving on to our thoughts of the week, you know, ugh, kills me to say it, but I guess I have to. The summer has come to an end. 
And as I'm counting, this weekend is still as part of it. I'm going to do one final tale from Rugby's Strangest Matches, the, the book I've been using all summer for some really interesting stories. Uh, if you haven't grabbed a copy, you really should. It's cheap and fun, and I've linked several ways to find it in the last few weeks. So for our final installment, uh, and to bring the heady days of summer to a gentle close, I offer you a chapter called The Secret Affair. It's from New Brighton in November of 1969. So the sixth Springboks to come to Britain and Ireland were the last official South African international team to visit these shores for more than 20 years. Their matches were played in difficult circumstances as protesters staged anti-apartheid demonstrations inside as well as outside the venues where they were scheduled to appear. Even before the opening match of the tour against Oxford University, the tourists had a taste of what was to come. Anticipating demonstrators, Oxford police informed the University Rugby Club that they would be unable to guarantee safe arrangements for a match at Ifley Road. Uh, it was sort of touch and go whether the match would proceed. On the eve of the fixture, it was announced that Twickenham would stage the game. Uh, two groups of protesters arrived at the ground on the afternoon of the match. There was a peaceful demonstration outside the ground, but a more militant group infiltrated the spectators inside to disrupt the match by blowing whistles. <laughs> Seems like a strange way to disrupt a match. I feel like you could just go to France and it would just be that way. Anyway, the game was surrounded by confusion, uh, though a strong police cordon successfully restricted demonstrators from breaking onto the field of play. Similar scenes followed the tourists more or less throughout the tour. At Swansea, there were unpleasant violent scenes before, during, and after the Springboks game against the local club. By the time the South Africans were due to make their first visit of the tour to Ireland in late November, Concerns were being expressed that the prevailing political troubles there, coupled with the threat of anti-apartheid disruption, would make the Ravenhill ground in Belfast, where the tourists were due to play, the focus for violent groups. And so, the scheduled tour match against Ulster was cancelled. The Saturday that had been set aside for that game, however, was also the date when New Brighton, one of Northern England's most homely clubs, were due to entertain the North of Ireland Football Club, one of Ulster's oldest and most distinguished clubs. The tour committee secretly arranged for the clubs to forego their annual fixture and to field a combined 15 that would face the Springboks instead. None of the players knew about the plan until the morning of the match. The game was played before a small crowd and went off without a hitch. It remains the only major tour match in the sport's history to be played in such secrecy. The Springboks won 22-6, and their skipper, Dawi de Villiers, I hope I'm not mispronouncing that, said afterwards that they had thoroughly enjoyed, quote, playing in a purely rugby atmosphere, unquote. For once, the tour demonstrators were absent, only learning that the game had been staged when they read the newspapers the next day. The Springboks were to feature in an even more clandestine affair nearly a dozen years later in North America. On that occasion, they were making a three-match visit to the United States after a full-scale tour of New Zealand. In an effort to escape anti-tour groups, their international with the Eagles was hastily arranged for a secluded polo field in the country districts of New York. The pitch was littered with horse manure. The makeshift posts were rapidly erected before the match and just as quickly dismantled after it. Preparations that were similar to those of a Sunday morning park match. It was recorded that 35 spectators, 20 policemen, a television crew, one pressman, and no protesters attended. Okay, that of course brings us to our reviews. And as always, we start with the international action in the boringly named rugby championship, New Zealand. We're looking to right the ship against Argentina. I did not have a good feeling about it. Uh, during the Haka, though, Caleb Clark, he was so fired up, I thought he might start hyperventilating out there. We would see if that was going to be a good thing or not. Uh, early side note, years ago, when I used to watch Los Pumas, you know, when you see the lineups, you tended to think to yourself, don't know that guy, don't know that guy, oh, that guy's good, and so on. But now, 
it's just not that way anymore. Every name jumps off the screen at you. They're just a murderer's row these days. In any event, New Zealand looked very good to start with Mwanga getting three before that many minutes had even gone by. And I recalled last week when he missed in that exact same position. Uh, so good omen, perhaps? Anyway, from the start, I could perceive that Mwanga would be much more heavily involved as a carrier rather than as a distributor. I imagine I'm going to have to wait until Squidge explains it all to me sometime soon. So after Argentina turned the ABs over on a promising drive, they put an incredible stat on the screen showing Los Pumas leading the BNRC with turnovers uh, in turnovers with 29, more than double the 14 of New Zealand. Boy, oh boy. But then after hearing me questioning him earlier, Caleb Clark responded by smashing one through on the left side. And with DeGroote's try earlier, it was 17 to nil just after the 20 minute mark. Uh, in the setup for Caleb's uh, score, Rico Ioane, he put on an absolutely insanely subtle and beautiful move on Buffelli, who was immediately sent to the ankle doctor. Um, speaking of Buffelli, the crowd really let him hear it as he lined up a penalty kick. Quote, a little unsporting, unquote, trolled the comms. That, uh, I'm still not sure where I stand on the, all this stuff. Anyway, naturally, a few hoots and boos were not enough to make him miss, and Argentina were on the board late in the first half. Only moments later, however, it was Tukiaho uh, getting another one down next to the post with Lavanini getting himself yellow carded for his defense leading up to it. Oh, well, nope, scratch that. The ref decided that there was a knock on at some point and had the TMO basically just go back and look until he found one. So that wiped away the, the score, but not the card. The comms said, no worries. Tokiaho knows his way to the try line and Lavanini knows his way to the sin bin. <laughs> Classic. Uh, sure enough, New Zealand kept coming with Rico Yuani going in right under the post, getting his first try of 2022. Hard to believe. 22nd overall in his test rugby career. They kept cutting to Lavanini sitting on the, on his little folding chair on the sideline. I assume just because the man always looks like he's crying, except when he's actually crying. So it was 24 to three. That was your halftime score. I expected a big response from Argentina coming out for the second period. By the way, Michael Checa, who they also kept cutting to, he looks like a really snobby wine enthusiast these days. I, I wish I had Photoshop so I could just have him like sniffing corks and making weird faces. In any event, during halftime, they always like to quickly interview assistant coaches. And when it, was, when it was New Zealand's turn, I was like, that's weird. I don't recognize this dude. And then I realized it's because they fired all the assistants rather than actually firing Fozzie a few weeks ago. Anywho, we, uh, we then saw a play. It would take me way too long to explain. So instead, I decided to just write the words, Artie Savia. And the words, holy crap. Another totally random side note here, by the way. What's the deal with Lavanini's scrum cap? It, it has what looks a bit like a like a Band-Aid right in the center of the forehead, but it started to peel off, so it's clearly not permanent. Is he hiding a brand name under there until he gets sponsored or something? This is not a joke. I'm honestly curious about that. And yet another random side note. Tokiaho landed uh, right on a line at one point, and it kind of dyed a chunk of his hair gray. So the end result being that he looked like all his work had literally aged him like 12 years in one match. Anyway, Moonga's second penalty kick also flew true. It was 27 to 3 as the reserves started to float onto the pitch for Argentina. Los Pumas built some real pressure deep in New Zealand territory, and then Fletcher Newell got yellow carded for too many defensive transgressions. This just about a minute after I had spotted him on the field and said to myself, "Who the heck is that guy?" Anyway, then what looked like a certain score for Argentina suddenly went all awry. Rico, again, with an eye-popping breakaway leading to a Jordy Barrett try. The ABs were up by 31. As the comms said, however, the Argentinians are not going to stop trying, that's for sure. So with 14 minutes left, 
they showed a stat I had never seen before. So the stat was kickable penalties declined and how many points have come from those declinations. And today, Argentina had eschewed four attempts, netting zero points out of it, while the home team had declined five times and garnered seven points for their efforts. Those numbers are a bit junky looking and probably don't tell us much this time, but I enjoy that stat in principle a lot. Make, let's, let's make that a thing, okay? Uh, anyway, as it unfolded, the total would change with Artie Savia getting another try off the ensuing lineout. What a freaking physical genius he is. The comms also mentioned that New Zealand had only committed two handling errors all day long, which seems basically impossible. Um, Brody Retallick was next in to dot one down. Fans in the audience were holding up babies like cups of beer, just waving them around, not caring what sloshed out. Six tries to nil at that stage, and it had become a complete dismantling. 46 to three with under five minutes, and then just to pour on some salt after a testy exchange in the closing moments, Artie Savia, there's that name again, set up Bowden Barrett off a scrum, and he went in for yet another try with the clock well read. 53-3 to three was your final score, and somehow I feel utterly wrung out. Woo! Next up, of course, Australia. We're hoping for another shock win over South Africa, and right off the bat, I mean, they were touting the fact that this one was sold out, but it took all of two minutes to realize the reason it was sold out was because the entirety of Springbok fandom had traveled down under to watch, and as South Africa scored their first try, the place absolutely erupted. It was, I don't know, to me it was a sad moment for Australian rugby fans. You know, I'm not even exaggerating. The crowd responses were so overtly and obviously favor, uh, favoring the visitors. I mean, I've never seen or heard anything like it. A uh, quick side note, by the way, I'd had a bit of a tough evening when I started watching this one, so uh, I was feeling a little hypersensitive or something. Um, hearing the crowd fully and vocally in support of the visiting team, I don't know. It It's like it really hurt my feelings somehow. <laughs> I don't know how that even works. Hard to describe, I guess. So South Africa, they had a 7-0 to nil, uh, lead and all the momentum in their favor. Somehow, Adelaide was ecstatic about it. Gross. So the comms tried to say something about how Nick White was getting raspberries from the crowd as they speculated, quote, because of the thing with Fafta Clerk last weekend, unquote, which just further incensed me. Like, the thing they're talking about was Nick White getting literally punched in the face, followed by everyone being mad that Faf got a penalty for it. So what is even happening in Oz right now? Anyway, several bizarre calls and non-calls from Ben O'Keefe had the comms saying, well, he's taking the easy way out with these calls rather than making a decision. And ugh, I was positively filthy with how this one was going. Ugh. Anyway, going to wrap it up. It was 3-17 to 17 at the half. Australia couldn't do anything right. It was really hard to see them finding any way to win or even keep it close. Your final score looked marginally better than the halftime score just because the Aussies uh, got an unconverted try at some point in the second half. It was 8-24 by the final hooter. The remaining 16 people who actually support the Wallabies must be feeling very confused at the moment. So moving away from the internationals, it was semi-final weekend down in the FPC. We began, of course, or at least here we're going to begin with the championship division. That is, of course, the lower of the two tiers with Hawks Bay Tui facing Northland. This one was pretty slow to get going. The home side nursing a 5-0 lead until well into the second quarter of play when Northland finally came alive and scored their first try. The half-hour mark, it was very tight, 8-7 for the Tui. Down 11-14 after the halftime whistle. Twice in a row, Hawks Bay eschewed the chance to kick penalties, instead looking for tries, but wouldn't end up finding any points out of it. The third quarter play was all theirs, however, and entering the final 20 minutes, suddenly they were up 21-14. The visitors couldn't find a single point in the second half until there was just two minutes left to play, which, you know, allowed them a more respectable final scoreline, but in the end, they couldn't get the job done. 
and winning 28-19, Hawks Bay were on their way to an FPC final next weekend. Good stuff. Next up then, it was Otago Spirit versus the North Harbor Hibiscus. And this was Harbor's second time playing in a championship semifinal. Having lost this same match to Otago in 2017, the Spirit, meanwhile, have played in the semis four times, winning all four and winning the championship itself for the first time back in 2019. In this one, it took North Harbor all of a minute and a quarter to score their first try. And this served as a bit of a wake-up call, I guess, for the home team, who then just bore down and just started pouring on points, leading 20-5 to after 25, 37 to 5 going into the break. The Hibiscus actually outscored their host in the second half, but not by nearly enough, I'm afraid, ending their season with another semifinal disappointment, 42 to 17 at the final horn. So next up, it was Canterbury Women versus Wellington Pride. This one would give us our first premiership finalists on a simply gorgeous day for rugby. Uh, it was going to be a pretty tall order for Wellington, however. Canterbury unbeaten on the season and just dominating this league for at least the last four seasons in a row. Half hour in, though. However, only five points have been scored, period. Wellington looked really, really convinced that they had a good chance here. Come the intermission, it was actually 5-3. Was a big upset in the cards. Sadly, you know, as the saying goes, it was a tale of two halves. Canterbury just completely found their groove and just ratcheted it up. From the start of the second half onward, they were up 24 to 3 with the final quarter yet to play. Wellington couldn't find a single point in the final 40 minutes and just looked truly crestfallen as it all came crashing to an end 31 to 3 in the end. Ouch. Then it was Waikato women hosting the Auckland Storm. This one was so close, so exciting until somehow, I don't know, seemingly out of the blue, Auckland just asserted themselves. It just it went from a one-point contest to a 12-point bust-up, and this with only minutes to go, too. Waikato, with a hugely valiant effort to close it out, as they scored after the actual in-house hooter had sounded, the comms kept saying, ask the question, ask the question. It was something about, you know, having the 10 ask the ref if there was going to be time for a restart. It kind of looked like she did do that, um, but I think the answer was, nope, sorry about that. So, Waikato, they stumble out of the playoffs at home, losing 21-26 Auckland, over the moon at the end. Just a great scene. Moving over to the NPC for the end of round four and most of round five. You know, to finish off round four, we had my beloved Wednesday fixture, this time between Canterbury and North Harbor. And at the top, they mentioned that the, uh, the, the Kevin Gimblet Memorial Trophy was on the line. So naturally, you know me, I, I tried to look that up. Predictably, I found absolutely nothing at all about the actual trophy, but did manage to see the final score for this match before I actually watched it. Oy vey already. As it turned out, Canterbury were completely dominant, going up 25-10 to 10 at halftime, and that was thanks to a try for the visitors after the hooter had sounded. North Harbor's lineout, only functioning at 50% last week, was still completely unreliable. By the end, they would fall 35-22. to 22. So round five began then on Friday with Manawatu hosting Tasman once again. Former Diamond in the Ruck recipient Lester Fainga Anuku was starting on the wing for the Mako, which always means exciting things despite losing their last three in a row. And Lester's older brother Tima is wearing this, that same number 14 jersey for the hosts. Very cool. I love it when that happens. Anyway, just for reference, 
Uh, we also had Willie Havili, younger brother of David Havili, but the All Black wasn't on hand for this one. So as if listening to me, Lester, I, I call him Lester now, obviously, ah, uh, he scored an easy try in the first couple of minutes to set the tone. The visitors were up double at the half, 12 to 24. Around the 55 minute mark, I realized the audio had gone off track and the sound was basically happening like 30 seconds before the video caught up. And I realized that was a pretty good time to check out completely. Manawatu would remain winless on the air, falling at home by the final score of 26 to 36. Then it was Northland versus Auckland. They really treated us to some gorgeous setup shots before this match started. I mean, the Aotearoa is clearly rugby mecca, and I, I feel that calling. <laughs> Meanwhile, in this one, I mean, very, very tight. The crowd was loving it. I mean, definitely the loudest bunch I've heard this whole season, with the home team gaining an edge uh, with about a quarter hour to go, 20 to 19. Auckland went up by virtue of a penalty kick, and the comms pointed out that they had never lost away to Northland. I mean, unbelievable, right? With a minute to go, the home team had a shot at breaking that curse. The kick went through to the delight of those on hand. And grabbing a turnover on Auckland's last drive, Tom Robinson sealed the historic win for Northland. Truly exciting stuff. 23-22, to 22, all told. And by the way, I was even more pleased to get a look at Northland's mascot there at the end, a big old dragon carrying a shield. Absolutely delightful. Next up was Taranaki versus Waikato. It was a one-point affair at the break, uh, with the current champs looking to steal another tricky one on the road. And with the Bulls unable to score in the second half, they soon found themselves pulling away 6-21 to with just a few minutes remaining. And that's how it would end, in fact. They, they casually mentioned, once again, that this meant Waikato had won the Ryan Wheeler Memorial Trophy, but no such hardware was in evidence anywhere. So, you know, unless one of you wants to get in touch, it will likely remain a mystery to me. Um, it's my impression that both these trophies I've mentioned are effectively matchup based. When I tried to look up the Kevin Gimblet Memorial Trophy, all the references were specific to Canterbury versus North Harbor. At North Harbor or Northland? Uh, North Harbor. And, um, and so for this one, it's always all the mentions I found were Taranaki versus Waikato, but you know, that's as far as I've managed to deduce thus far. Please get in touch if you know more. Anyway, it was Southland versus Wellington next. It was wet and windy. The crowd didn't care one bit. I love that. Down 13 to 21 at halftime, the Southland supporters were still totally over the top for their side, but in the end, there was just too much all-black firepower on that Wellington team. The visitors would take this one easily, 28 to 41 by the very end. Then on Sunday, Canterbury took on Hawks Bay, and I don't know what was up with Canterbury, but they just couldn't get it going, scoring only a single unconverted try into the second half. Uh, not that Hawk Bay, Hawks Bay looked much better, to be fair. As we came around to the final 20 minutes, Canterbury finally pieced together a couple nice moments, and suddenly it was 22-25. to 25. After the Magpies uh, had had what the comms called a stranglehold all game, um, at 67 minutes, Fergus Burke tied it up despite being down a player and this one had gotten very exciting indeed. Brad Weber slotted one to retake the lead, but Canterbury answered with a converted try and looked to close it out. An ill-advised grubber kick by Hawks Bay went right into Canterbury's hands. They kicked it out and came away winners 32-28 to in a shocker. Great match, this one. Next up, we had Otago welcoming Bay of Plenty. And I, I'm very sorry I ended up missing almost all of this one because it looked super exciting. With Otago, who they mentioned have an 87% win record against uh, BOP, or BOP, as I've recently begun calling them. Uh, but today, no, it was the visitors taking a surprising 27-33 win. And the wrinkles to this season just keep coming. I love it. 
Next, North Harbor faced Counties Monaco. Um, that was the last weekend of, uh, weekend match for me, at least. And as you've probably all come to expect by now, please don't tell me about it because I am saving it. The next Wednesday, of course, we'll finish things off for round five with Tasman facing Wellington. And I do love these midweek fixtures. The NPC, the comp that keeps on giving. Okay, moving on to what is a brand new competition for us here at the Scrum of the Earth. It was the beginning of the new season of the French Top 14. As I've said here many times, you know, for several years now, I've been hoping to watch the Top 14. I know I've heard so many great things about this league. I was pretty psyched for this weekend, you know, to be my my brand new introduction. It was a surprise that it was even going to be carried. Sadly, their provider is once again Blow Rugby. Four of the seven matches this weekend um, were completely unwatchable in one way or another. Um, while writing my notes, I was just kind of getting angrier and angrier, angrier about it as I was, you know, watching each successive match turn that turned out to be a test pattern or a blank screen with no audio. Uh, all my writing sort of turned into just endless complaining about the bogus lack of coverage, about the crappiness of Blow Rugby. And I decided, you know what, I'm not doing that. So I'm just going to talk about the fixtures that actually worked as advertised. And, you know, maybe the ch check the scores for the others at the end. So to kick things off, thank all the gods. It actually worked. And it was Rassing facing Kast. And uh, according, according to the comms, a new season for the top Kators, which I instinctively feel like set the tone for what I'm going to be in for this year. Uh, hey, I've been asking for it. I can't really complain, right? Anyway. Uh, what am I even talking about? There's no complaining about this league except for how hard they work their players. The league itself is obviously incredible. Rassing came out hoping to lay down a marker for the coming travails. Uh, they would indeed strike first. They're preposterously absurd. Even, even Jerry Jones wouldn't do this screen, taking up the entire area in line with the posts and proudly proclaiming 3-2-0. <laughs> By the way, it was my first ever chance to see Finn Russell in his normal sort of just day-to-day -day job. What a lovely treat that was. This, of course, was also my first encounter with the British commentary for this most Gallic of competitions, so set your phasers to understated and be prepared to just crack a, a slightly wry smile at least once per 40 minutes. Uh, side note, really good crowd in a really big stadium. It must be so much fun to see French rugby in person. But anyways, in lovely French fashion, a man sent off for an HIA is, ba is back quickly enough to score a try with 25 minutes past. Just a nail-biting opener, though. Eight to nine. Player health be damned, I say. Anyway, it was at this point that I noticed, once again, the audio was off. Maybe like three seconds ahead of what we were actually watching. And, oh my word, I'm so scared. For this year now, with Blow Rugby in charge of, like, every competition I watch except for the Prem. Oh boy, this is going to be tough. 15 to 12 was your score at the halftime. Rassing, playing from behind for most of the second half, finally regained the lead with just a few minutes left. But coughed it up for cast to have one last gasp uh but a quick slip up and it was all over 25 to 19 welcome to the top 14 so stade francais versus claremont po versus perpignan brieve versus Lyon, toulon versus bayonne those were the four consecutive failures in a row so i don't know what to tell you anyway next was la rochelle versus montpellier you know Lots and lots of international players, and this one I was I was weirdly pleased to see Matthew Reynal refereeing. And I swear, when he's officiating in France, his facial hair becomes more Gallic somehow than it appears in other areas. Anyway, the game itself was totally sick, just so evenly matched and so close. With La Rochelle finding their way to a 19 to 15 lead, entering the final quarter. Okay, 
quick side note here. I apologize for using the word quarters, you know, that, that convention while we're talking about this. I obviously know full well there are no quarters in rugby. The fact is 99% of rugby comms and pundits are using this convention. It's simply too easy to pass up. It instantly makes sense to everyone. And technically, even though there are no official quarters per se, it is still true that the last 20 minutes of an 80-minute game represent the final quarter of action. So just want to make sure we're on board with that. Anyway, once again, an insane breakdown of play led to the comms shouting, Merci beaucoup! The visitors were on top with Carbonell making it 19-22. to Oh my God, so good. But soon after, with the home side up 26-22, to the comms told us, they're going to kick to the corner. If they score a try, no need for the conversion. They win the game. Lose the ball, game over. And it was true. Indeed, it was 26 to 22 in favor of the home side as ugh, Sweet Caroline annoyingly rang out in the background. What's up with that? Finally, Bordeaux Begla, they hosted Toulouse. And thankfully, yes, it was available in full. And it turned out to be an absolutely smashing game. I was so into it. 15 to 9 for the home side with French internationals all around. What a, what a big fight this far. Um, <laughs> quote, he gets absolutely smashed into smithereens, unquote, shout the comms. And I wasn't even sure who they meant, but I loved it. As I was writing this, of course, Bordeaux Begla, uh, their left winger, got his second try on debut. And it was uh, looking like strange things were a brewing. Sure enough, an insane try by Intimac made it 22 to 23. So, so good. Seesawing back and forth, Javinet made it 25 to 26 with 13 minutes left, but Jalibert missed a bit of a gimme, and they were still behind at home. Jalibert would miss another shortly thereafter, and it was looking dark for the home team after all this work. Then a third shot to take the lead went awry, and it was well and truly over. Toulouse stealing one away by a point. Moving over to the Super 6 Championship up in Scotland, and something was up with the Super 6 this weekend, at least, you know, from, from where I sat. Um, Friday was, in fact, the Bormir Bears facing Harriet's Rugby. My Bears looked good again in a 26-17 home win. But on my list, at least, next was supposed to be Southern Knights at home for Ayrshire Bulls, and I can't I can't find that result anywhere, nor any mention of why it might have been canceled or postponed, so I, I just don't know at this point. Uh, however, last but not least, it was Watsonians welcoming the Sterling Wolves and the new brand for Sterling is developing a bit of a stink about it as they lost in supreme fashion, getting smoked by Watsonians to the tune of 66-7. to Holy cow! So for me, that would end our weekend of rugby, and boy, oh boy, that was a whole lot. By the music, you'll all know it's time for this week's Diamond in the Ruck Award, and this week the award goes to Caleb Clark. Mr. Clark, the look on your face at the start of this match let us all know how deadly serious you were about helping to right this ship for your All Blacks, and you went out and delivered in a huge way. You had a try of your own, facilitated a couple of others, and woe to the man who tried tackling you on the day, several of whom are still being swept up with a broom. Uh, after missing out on Olympic 7s, your recommitment to the 15s game has been phenomenal. Your spot in the starting lineup at the very top level has been proven well justified. Caleb Clark, winger extraordinaire and overall cool dude, congratulations to you, sir, for you are this week's Diamond in the Ruck. Well done, sir.
it's time for our updates and previews. The BNRC is on hold again this coming weekend for travel and recuperation arrangements, uh, but they will return for the final two legs starting the following week. Meanwhile, the FPC finals for the championship for the undercard. It'll be unbeaten Otago Spirit hosting Hawks Bay Tui. And after being runners-up the last two seasons, Otago will be feeling a lot of pressure for that one. And then in the premiership in the top division, we'll also have unbeaten Canterbury welcoming the Auckland Storm to Christchurch, looking for their fifth consecutive title, which is pretty mind-boggling when you think about it. Over in the NPC, it is rounds five slash six. Round five, of course, will finish off on Wednesday, September 7th with Tasman versus Wellington. Round six starts on Friday with just the single matchup, Waikato hosting Auckland, and from then on, it's Hawks Bay attempting another defense of the Ranfurly Shield, this time against Southland. Can't wait for that one. I love those games. Then it'll be North Harbor versus Boop, uh, Counties Monaco versus Manawatu, Tasman versus Taranaki, Wellington versus Otago, Canterbury versus Northland, and then it will be another midweek match to fulfill the round with Waikato hosting Southland. Wow, tough draw for Southland this round. Yikes. Then over in the top 14 for round two, we will start of a ba- uh, with a battle of the L teams with Lyon hosting La Rochelle. Then it's Perpignan versus Brive, Bayonne versus Racing, Claremont versus Poe, Cast versus Stade Francais. Pretty sure I incorrectly called them Stade Francaise last week, by the way. Sorry about that. Uh, then it's Montpellier welcoming Bordeaux Vegle. And finally, the teams I've already warned you I won't be able to keep straight. It'll be Toulouse versus Toulon. Oh, wow. I'm already working on screwing that up majorly. Then, of course, my friends, the Gallagher Premiership starts. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's just not looking good at this point. The Prem is set to kick off on Friday, September 9th, with still no way to watch it here in the United States as I record this. All their fixtures I see you know, on their site are listed as either BT Sport, which we can't get, or Premiership Rugby TV, their own streaming service, that also doesn't work here. So I've been told by people who seem pretty reliable that it will in fact be there on Peacock, but it's Monday morning right now and there's no sign of it. Um, Let's all collectively cross our fingers, I guess. Um, If you have the keys to this particular kingdom, please share them with me. I can't imagine a whole season of not seeing any of this action. In any event, as I say, things do start on Friday. Though as of this writing, there's still some things up in the air regarding the Warriors and the Wasps. As far as I know, those fixtures are on. Uh, if it goes to current plan, it will be Bristol versus Bath to start things off. Then Sale versus Northampton, Exeter versus Leicester, London Irish versus Worcester, Newcastle versus Harlequins, and Gloucester versus Wasps. Here's me crossing my fingers again. <laughs> Next up, the Super Six. Back in Scotland, we'll see the Super Six taking a breather. The team's off until September 16th, or I should say, four of the teams taking off until September 16th. Uh, I did end up actually answering my own question from earlier, as the Knights and Bulls fixture I had thought was this weekend is actually the lone match next weekend on the 10th. Should be fun. Well, my friends, that does it for yet another week. As always, it's been almost too much fun. So as soon as I know where or if I'll be able to watch the Prem this year, I'll be sure to mention it on the Twitters. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, Also, if you could take a moment to leave me a nice review, it's been kind of a while. It would really mean a lot to me. That would be smashing of you. Oh, last thing, as if I need this. I've discovered a brand new, at least to me, competition known as the Rugby Europe Super Cup. Just what I need, right? A whole new competition. (sighs) I can already tell. I'm, I'm not going to be able to resist. Uh, so stay tuned for more on that. Uh, not sure how that's going to go yet, but I will keep you abreast. As always, thanks again for coming along. To all of you across the globe, 
Cheers. Talk to you soon. And be well.